Welcome to the PCOS Diva podcast. My name is Amy Medling. I'm a certified health coach and founder of PCOS Diva. My mission is to help women with PCOS find the tools and knowledge they need to take control of their PCOS so they can regain their fertility, femininity, health, and happiness. Today's PCOS Diva podcast is sponsored by the seven-day Discover Your PCOS Diva Jumpstart program. Jumpstart is the place to begin when you're ready to commit to yourself and jump into your healing journey. Learn step-by-step how diet, lifestyle, and mindset changes can get you on the right path. You'll be thrilled to feel your energy return, brain fog lift, acne begin to clear, and so much more. Visit PCOSDiva.com slash jumpstart for more information and to get started today. If you haven't already, make sure you check out PCOSDiva.com. There I offer tons of great free information about PCOS and how to develop your PCOS diet and lifestyle plan so you can begin to thrive like a PCOS diva. Look for me on iTunes, Facebook, Pinterest, and Instagram as well. I'm thrilled to welcome back one of my most popular PCOS Diva podcast guests, and that's registered dietitian Martha McKittrick. Uh, Just so that you know, she has done two other episodes, episode 63 on practical tips to tame PCOS inflammation, and episode 84 on the pros and cons of the ketogenic diet. So welcome, Martha. I'm so excited to be talking about today's topic, which is why there is no best diet for PCOS. Thanks, Amy. I'm so excited to be back. I always love coming on your podcast, and I'm so happy that this is the subject that we're going to be talking about because it's kind of my mantra. I know, and I think that there is a lot of confusion, especially um, among social media, you know, with all of these Facebook groups out and about, and um, people expressing, um, you know, a lot of success with whatever diet that they're choosing, Um, and then, you know, it kind of sends us down this path of, okay, we're going to try the keto diet or the vegan diet or, um, or intermittent fasting because it worked for another woman with PCOS, it must work for me. Exactly. And I think social media is a blessing and a curse. Um, I think it's great because we can do our own research and you can advocate for yourself and learn about PCOS. But where it can be, I think, kind of a curse is that, you know, if you're on Instagram or Facebook groups, uh, like you said, there are maybe women who've had success with certain types of programs and, and they're attracting followers, but it's kind of like they're saying, this is how you have to do it. Uh, And there's all kinds of articles. If you Google diet and PCOS, you're going to find all kinds of stuff out there. And it's kind of like, you know, this is the way, this is the diet you have to follow. And it's just so confusing for women. When I read this stuff, it drives me nuts. But for, I can't even imagine if you have PCOS, how you must feel when you're reading all this stuff. So we're going to sort of demystify um, and talk about really the one best diet. And before we dive into the content for, for today's podcast, I just want to give those who don't know about your work a little bit more information about you. So 
You're a registered dietitian, a certified diabetes educator, and well coach. You're a certified health and wellness coach, and you've been specializing in PCOS for over 15 years. You've lectured across the country to medical professionals and women with PCOS. You've been published in many medical journals, and you uh, were, wrote two chapters in a book about PCOS. It was one of the first books that I read about PCOS, which was um, A Patient's Guide to PCOS by Dr. Walter Furwright. And um, you are also on the health advisory board for PCOS Challenge. I know I see you at a lot of the PCOS Challenge events, um, and you're just, you know, you're really immersed in this PCOS world, and so I think that you're you know, really one of my go-to guides for nutrition for women with PCOS. So I'm glad you're here today sort of talking about, um, you know, really what's the one best approach. And I just want to call out your Instagram page. You have a great Instagram page and uh, you had a really good uh, meme about why there is no um, one best diet. I mean, I was talking about sort of the one best approach, but one best diet. So I, I, I thought that was really um, informative. And I was hoping that you can kind of talk a little bit more about like what was on that meme and, um, and, and what do we have to consider when we're looking at, you know, the best way of eating for us. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I don't have PCOS, but I'm super passionate about it. And um, I just find it, it's very interesting, and I think kind of tr helping to treat women, diet and lifestyle play a huge role in it, and, you know, that's why I say lifestyle, because it's not just diet, and I think a lot of women kind of get caught up on just, you know, follow this kind of diet or that kind of diet and forget about, you know, getting enough sleep and exercise and stress management and emotional health. That, to me, is sometimes even more important than the actual diet part, um, but to answer your question, so I, I kind of, I believe there's no one size fits all approach when it comes to nutrition for PCOS or diet for PCOS. And there's so many reasons why. And when you read some of these things on social media, it might say you have to go keto or the opposite, go plant-based. And this is what you need to do if you have PCOS. But we can't we can't say there's a one-size-fits-all approach for women with PCOS. And there's a couple different reasons, and some of them are really sneaky but really interesting. Um, I think the more basic reasons is everybody has different metabolisms. Some women might need can eat 1,800 calories, and others need to eat a lot less to lose weight. And I know not everybody counts calories. I don't recommend everybody counts calories, but we have very different varying caloric needs. So if you're trying to follow – this kind of one diet plan that somebody's selling, it may not work for you because if you eat too few calories, it's not good. But on the other hand, if you eat too many, you're not going to lose. So we're very individualized there. Uh, we have different activity levels. If you're very, very active, you may not do well on a very low-carb diet because um, you need carbs for energy, and that can actually backfire, and it can make, it can, you can make your symptoms worse. Um, there's different degrees of insulin resistance. Some women are not as insulin resistant as others. In my experience, I found the more insulin resistant you are, you might need to be a little stricter with your carb intake. Um, but again, it depends on the woman. So every single woman with PCOS does not have to be on a really low-carb diet. 
Yeah, I wanted to just um, interject my personal experience. So I tend to be more on that sort of thin phenotype of PCOS. I, I never really had insulin resistance come up on my blood work, um, but I know I do have a degree of insulin resistance. And um, I, for me, I cannot go without any grains because it makes me feel very shaky. Um, I, I don't feel grounded. Uh, so I have to have some type of um, grain in my, like rice or um, oats in my diet to just sort of make me feel stable. Where I, in my experience, a lot of women who um, are more insulin resistant um, tend to feel better without as much grain. But exactly, um, exactly. Um, and they have done studies where when lean PCOS um, women tend to have increased uh, rates of hypoglycemia, which is exactly what you just said. If you don't have enough grains or if you go too long without eating, you can get these really shaky, bad feelings. So you're right. So that's why there's no one-size-fits-all approach for, for a carb intake, for sure. Um, another one is, and this is where... Oh, medical conditions, for example, somebody might have high cholesterol, um, so they might need to be a little more careful with the kinds of fats that they're eating. Um, you know, if you have other medical conditions, you need to take that into account because, you know, keto may not be the best diet for you if you have high cholesterol or um, genetically high cholesterol especially, so you need to keep that in mind. Yeah, and, and something else I was wondering if you're seeing this, um, that women that are on the ketogenic diet that, that may have sort of fatty liver um, issues, that it tends to kind of um, aggravate fatty liver. That's what I'm seeing in some... Yeah, that makes me a little bit nervous. I mean, I'm really open-minded about different kinds of plants. That's why, you know, if somebody comes to me and, and they they have their heart set on keto, I'll work with them and say, well, maybe it's not the best, but hey, let's do it this way. Let's make it be healthy. But my concern is if you have fatty liver. And a huge percentage of women with PCOS uh, and type 2 diabetes have fatty liver. And eating large amounts of fat is not good for fatty liver. So I haven't seen any studies that show it worsens it, but I certainly would think that it would. Um, so, yeah, that, that's certainly an issue, Amy. Um, but, but other things where I think it gets kind of interesting is when it comes to food intolerances or food sensitivities. Um, and the thing about this is it's kind of hard to, like, diagnose it in a test and you read a lot of things on the internet that says don't have dairy and don't have gluten. And I don't think there are any studies that really show if you have PCOS, you should not have gluten. But if you cut it out and you feel better, you might have a gluten sensitivity. So that's a huge, I think, part when you are picking a diet that's best for you would be the gluten uh, would be, excuse me, the, the food sensitivities. So common food sensitivities could be to dairy, it could be to gluten, there are other foods too, but those are two common ones. And so how do you know if you have a food sensitivity? Uh, the best way would be to cut it out, you know, cut it out of your diet for at least a couple weeks, uh, you know, even two to four weeks. And then you could reintroduce it one food at a time and just see, do your symptoms come back? And if they do, then you know that, that you might have a food sensitivity to 
that particular food. But I don't think automatically every woman with PCOS needs to cut out gluten. And I know that's on a lot of the, uh, the social media accounts is that you have to go gluten-free if you have PCOS. And I, I really believe it depends on the woman. I have lots of women who say, hey, when I have gluten, I don't feel well, I might have some stomach issues, or I have like achiness, or my PCOS symptoms get worse. But when I cut it out, I feel better, then you know what, that's great, don't have it. I know for me, I, it's not so much like stomach bloating, it, it's the mood. Uh, when I have it, I get very kind of depressed and irritable um, to the point where like my husband can sometimes tell if it slipped back into my diet. Um, yeah. So it, it, it really more affect. I think it's inf inflaming um, my gut and brain. That's my, my thing. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I would say that gluten can, it, it can cause inflammation and people are sensitive to it. And there's, there's all different symptoms. Like you said, it's irritability, it's mood. Some people say joint joint pain or fatigue, um, brain fog, migraine. So there's a lot of symptoms that could come from having gluten if you're sensitive to it. And I think women with PCOS tend to already have a low-grade inflammation. And if you're eating a food that you're sensitive to, it can make your inflammation worse. So that's why when you cut that food out, you feel better. So it's certainly worth doing a trial of cutting certain foods out. Yeah, and I think all of those uh, symptoms that you mentioned are good kind of benchmarks for you to, to pay attention to um, exactly. with any food. Exactly, exactly. And then the dairy one, it's, it's the same kind of thing. Now, dairy could, could cause a couple different things. I'm not anti-dairy with PCOS. I mean, I certainly don't recommend you start drinking glasses of milk and eating ice cream, but, you know, I find if you have a plain Greek yogurt or a little maybe shaved Parmesan on a salad, I'm okay with that. But you have to pay attention to how your body feels. A couple different things could occur with dairy. Uh, one of them is lactose intolerance. It's believed about 70% of the population has a lactose intolerance to a certain degree. And that means you're missing an enzyme that helps you break down the milk sugar lactose. So when you eat something with lactose like yogurt or milk, um, you would get gas or bloating or diarrhea. You would have a gastrointestinal symptom. So that's lactose intolerance. Um, if that's your issue, sometimes if you have something like hard cheese, you wouldn't get the issue as much. It occurs more with like milk and yogurt. Um, so in that case, just don't have it. Or if you really love yogurt, you could buy a lactose-free yogurt kind of thing. Um, so that's the lactose intolerant. Another thing that could happen is there, and that's due to the, the sugar in milk. There's also protein in milk. Um, some people actually have allergies to the protein in milk. So if you eat dairy and you have uh, reactions like itchy throat or hives, that could be actually due to um, the, the allergy, and then you could get tested from your doctor, and they can tell you if you have an allergy to milk or any other food. Um, and the last thing is a sensitivity. You may have a sensitivity to dairy. And the way you would test that is you cut the food out and you see if you feel better. They have done studies with acne and dairy. And if you have acne um, and PCOS, you may want to do a trial of cutting out dairy or eating it very minimally and see if your acne gets better. So that, you know, that's kind of how I feel about, about dairy. I don't think women with PCOS should be having a lot of dairy just due to the hormones in the milk. But I'm not totally anti-dairy. 
And I think it also depends on the kind of dairy that you're having. Like if you had a, like a Greek yogurt or something that's fermented, that can actually help with the good bacteria in your gut, which is a really good thing. So I would, I would say if you are going to have dairy, I would rather see you have something fermented like kefir or yogurt over milk. I often say to think about cheese, like you had mentioned, just a little Parmesan on a salad um, or an entree, uh, and to think of cheese as like a garnish. I know so many um, are, I think, addicted to cheese and think of cheese as really your, your um, protein in a meal. And I just yeah. don't think that that's the, the right approach to, to looking at dairy. I agree. I agree. And also think about cheese. Like, what does it often go along with? Pizza, lasagna, maybe on pasta. So like you said, if you have a little cheese in a salad, that's different than having something where there's like a lot of cheese in, in your main meal. So it, that, that depends. And the, the food sensitivities, I just wanted to call attention to the podcast I did with um, Dr. Margaret Nicholas, and we'll put that in the show notes. Um, but she talks about food sensitivity testing, and um, my husband and I did the, the tests that she talks about on, on the show. And my husband found out that he's highly allergic to cinnamon, and you know we never really put two and two together until we got those test results, and now he can really he really can tell um, when he's had cinnamon, it makes him feel um, really kind of logy for the rest of the, the day. And, you know, his, his he can kind of feel it in his mouth too. His mouth gets kind of raw. Um, but you'd never think cinnamon would be something that you'd be allergic to. So I think that there's a lot of different foods you could have sensitivity to. Exactly. That's so interesting. Wow. I'm going to have to listen to that podcast. Um, and then the next thing is a food, um, well, going back to the food intolerance, there is a condition called IBS, which can affect up to 20% of the population. It's so common, and that's one of the areas that I specialize in my practice. And some studies say that it might even be more common in women with PCOS. That's because of the altered gut microbiome. But in any case, it's very popular. It's very common in general. And what that means is when you consume certain sugars and fibers, they ferment in the intestines and they can cause diarrhea, gas, bloating, constipation, pain. Um, and it's like root from really healthy foods too. You know, foods like asparagus or blackberries or hummus or garlic or onions, apples. And these are foods that I generally encourage my patients to eat. But if you have IBS or like an undiagnosed IBS and you're eating a lot of these healthy foods, it might be causing you a lot of like bloating and an uncomfortable feeling. And the good news about that is if you go on, it's called a low FODMAP diet, that can actually help you with your symptoms because you're cutting down on these fermentable carbohydrates. Um, you don't go on this diet long term. You go on for like two to four weeks. So you cut these, these fermentable carbohydrates out. And then very systematically, you will add the food groups back in so you can identify which food group causes you the problem. Is it the oligosaccharides, um, which is onions and garlic and beans? Um, or is it the polyols 
or is it the fructose, which has a lot of fruit? So it doesn't mean you have to be in this diet long term, but the people who I've worked with have gone in this diet, some of them just said it's changed their life because they were always uncomfortable with their these GI conditions and their stomach was always really bloated and now they figure out they can't have onions and garlic or foods in the oligosaccharide groups. So that to me is really interesting. And I find a lot of women who think they're sensitive to gluten, when you cut out um, foods that have gluten, usually it's like pasta and bread and that kind of stuff, those foods also have oligosaccharides in it. So you might actually be having a problem with the oligosaccharides versus the actual gluten, but you feel better because you've cut these foods out. So it's worth looking into that if you have, have a lot of those symptoms of the gas, the bloating, the diarrhea, or the constipation. Do you have more resources about FODMAPs on your site? Um, I do, but a really good resource would be Monash University. There's a Monash app, and they're the ones that kind of were the low FODMAP diet originated, and um, they have really some great information on it. So that's a good one. There's another dietitian. Her name is Patsy Katsos. It's C-A-T-S-O-S. And another dietitian is Kate Scarlatta. And these are dietitians who specialize in IBS, and they have fantastic blogs and free downloads. Great, great resources. Thank you. Yeah. So now is where it gets really interesting. So we've talked about metabolism. Oh, food preferences. I forgot to talk about that. That's really important because if you love meat and your doctor said go on a vegan or plant-based diet, like that's probably not going to work for you. Or if you feel like you really need some chicken or fish at your meals, a plant-based diet may not work for you. So I'll just um, share a little story. My and, and I don't know how you feel about kind of like that blood type diet, but I do think that there's something to, to um, being like an O blood type and needing animal protein. Um, my, my sister has tried her best to be a vegan, you know, she's got all, you go to her house, she's got all of these vegan cookbooks and she kind of jokes around that she's, you know, a vegan, but a a couple times a month she needs to go have a prime rib because she's just uh, craves meat so bad. And um, that's what her body's telling her it needs. So it's, uh, and, and I don't know, I've seen that in a lot of my clients too, that the O's seem to need to have animal protein. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think you just, you have to listen to your body. Yeah. Um, if, if you feel like just having, you know, beans or, or grains and vegetables, if it doesn't hold you long enough, then you really need to have some, the, the meat, fish, or chicken in there. You have to pay attention to your body. And then obviously, if you're plant-based keto or a very low-carb diet is not going to work for you because there's just nothing left for you to eat. So you have to take that into account because we're looking at like an eating plan for life. This is not something you do for a couple weeks and then you go back to whatever. It needs to be something you can stick to. So you need to keep your food preferences in mind. Um, so, But the areas I find really interesting um, would be Jeanette Jeans. This is, I think, where everything's really heading in the direction is personalized nutrition, where you can have your genes tested, and they'll be able to tell you like what kinds of diets work better for you or how your body responds to certain nutrients. I know, Amy, we were just talking before the podcast about 23andMe, and you said you had yours done, and I had mine done. 
it doesn't give you that much information yet. I think it said I'm like a, a slow caffeine metabolizer, and if I eat saturated fat, I'm not going to gain weight or something like that. Yeah, I think they just put out a new marker for type 2 diabetes too. Yes, yeah. yes. And I think it said I have an average risk of type 2 diabetes. It doesn't really tell us much. So I think this is an area maybe in the next 5 or 10 years it's going to explode and we might get a lot more information on it. I, right now, it's interesting, but it's not that helpful yet. But that's where it's, I think it's going is personalized nutrition. But the area I'm super interested in is the gut microbiome. Um, and this, to me, really helps explain why there's no one-size-fits-all diet approach for people. Um, it's because we all have about five pounds of bacteria living in our gut. And they metabolize food differently. Like, so here's an example. They did this really interesting study at the Weizmann Institute of Science where they had about 1,000 people, and they had them were glucose, uh, continuous glucose monitors. They tested um, their blood sugar, their genes. They looked at their medical history, and they did samples of their gut microbiome. And basically what they found is that people would respond very, very differently to different kinds of carbohydrate. For example, if somebody had um, jelly beans or if somebody had a banana or somebody had whole wheat bread, you would expect the whole wheat bread would have a slower rise of blood sugar. But in some people it did, but in other people when they had the jelly beans, there was a slower rise of blood sugar. And, oh, that's so interesting. Yeah, it was fascinating to me. And so they were able to, to bring it all down to the gut microbiome. The kind of bacteria you have in your gut will determine how you respond to food. So, you know, how can we say to everybody, oh, you, you shouldn't have something high glycemic or you shouldn't have this or you have to follow this diet. We don't know what your gut microbiome is. So that's just another reason why I think we can't do this one-size-fits-all approach. The thing is, right now, we don't have enough information yet. Again, I bet 10 years down the line, you can give a sample, a stool sample. We'll check your gut microbiome, and we'll say, okay, you know, you shouldn't have dairy, or you should eat this way, and we'll know a lot more. You might do better on a higher-fat diet or a higher-carb diet, but we don't know that yet, but that's where it's headed. But the point is, is that we can't say everybody responds to food the same way. And I just had a client who did this because I kept encouraging her, do do it, do it. I want to see the results. And she has diabetes, and um, she tests her blood sugar. And I have been encouraging her, you know, don't have white carbs and, you know, eat this healthy kind of fruit or whatever. And when she had this done by a company called Day 2, they said that she could eat these foods that I was really saying she shouldn't eat because it wouldn't really raise her blood sugar and that she should limit another healthy food like an apple or something. And she now is testing her blood sugar and she's seeing what they're saying is actually true. And this, again, is based on her gut microbiome. Tell us more about that test. I'm kind of interested. It's called, if you go onto the website called Day 2, um, you will see there's like a kit you can order. Um, it started out in Israel, but now it's actually in the U.S., and I think they're partnering, might be with the Mayo Clinic, um, but they, you'll get like an app, and they'll, and they'll, based on your genes and your gut microbiome, they'll be able to kind of predict when you eat 
blueberries, it will raise your sugar X amount. But if you combine it with an, like nuts, like walnuts, now it only raises your sugar this much. And so they, they show you how to combine foods. Um, but what's fascinating to me is just the different types of fruit. You know, as a certified diabetes educator, I do a lot of work with counting grams of carbohydrate. But 15 grams of carbohydrate from an apple might respond differently differently in your body than 15 grams of carbohydrate from blueberries kind of thing. So now that we have a better understanding why one, one size doesn't fit all, what are some tips and tricks on how to figure out what works best for us individually? I don't think anybody would dispute certain dietary recommendations when it comes to PCOS. Uh, you want to follow an anti-inflammatory diet and a diet that's good for insulin resistance and a diet that's good for the gut microbiome. So the good news is all three of those have certain things in common. Um, you want to eat plenty of vegetables. Uh, choose organic when possible. Uh, they're anti-inflammatory. They don't affect blood sugar. And they're very good for the gut microbiome because you want to really be feeding your good bacteria lots of food to keep them alive. So make vegetables a huge part of your diet. You want to limit or avoid added sugars, um, you know, obviously sweetened drinks or uh, candy or that kind of stuff. Even like the healthy sugars like maple syrup and honey use in agave, use those in moderation because a lot of sugar will worsen um, inflammation and can make higher levels of insulin and not be good for the gut microbiome. I kind of like to say, make your plate maybe like a quarter protein at meals. So the protein could be like fish. I'm especially a fan of fatty fish, poultry or lean meat, or um, you could count beans as a protein or nuts and seeds if you're plant-based. And then you would want to fill half your plate with vegetables, and then you could do a quarter of your plate with a healthy grain, um, like brown rice or quinoa, um, bulgur, barley, and then some fat. You want to put some healthy fats in there, like olive oil, avocado. Um, you could do even coconut oil. And then you want to put some anti-inflammatory spices in there, like um, different kinds of like turmeric or um, pepper, uh, and then the teas. I'm a huge fan of green tea and spearmint tea. It might help lower androgens. So that should be like the basis, kind of the basis of your plate. And then I would suggest that you keep a food record um, or a, food, a journal, I should say, where you record what you eat, the time you eat, and then see how you feel. So if you currently enjoy consuming dairy products, just make a note, you know, that you had a yogurt. And then you would note that you felt bloated later or if you felt foggy or um, if you feel like your, your acne is kind of getting worse. So keep a note of how your body feels physically and mentally. And then you can kind of start to narrow down if certain foods may be bothering you. And then you could cut it out, see if you feel better, and then add a certain food in. But I kind of like the Mediterranean style of eating because it's not a low-fat diet. I'm a fan of eating fat, but it comes from healthy fats like nuts and seeds and all that, uh, fatty fish, lots of vegetables, some fruit, and some whole grains. 
That's really my approach too, as you were describing your dinner plate. That sounds a lot like my diva dinner plate. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's, and it, it's just, um, you know, sound nutrition advice, I think, and then just tailoring it to the way that it, food makes you feel. And if you want to, you know, if you want to give really low carb a, a, a try, go ahead. I, I'm certainly on board with that. I'm, I'm on board with experimenting. See what feels better for your body. If you want to try some intermittent fasting, tw- try it. Maybe like in 12-hour fast. But I think the point is, is if you're following a plan and it's not making you feel good or it's causing you more stress, then it's not the plan for you. Like I tried keto, for example, just to see what it felt like. And I don't have PCOS, but it stressed me out because I was trying to think, well, what should I eat? And did I eat enough fat? And it didn't feel right for me. And I like a little bit of fruit. Um, so so see, what, see what works for your body. And there's so many different kinds of plans. And if you see somebody on Instagram and they have 20,000 followers and they're saying, don't eat this and don't eat that, don't feel like that's what you have to do. You have to find what works for you. Yeah, and you mentioned earlier in the podcast that you know, it's a lifestyle and it needs to be sustainable. Um, I, I think that it's, we, we really need to stress that this isn't a diet that you're going to go on and off. Um, it, it needs to be something that you can follow over the course of a lifetime in a lot. 100%. And, and it needs to be healthy, you know, because there are increased health risks with PCOS, uh, diabetes, and heart disease. And if you want to go on a very, very low carb or even keto diet and you like it, then that's fine. But just make sure you're taking in enough vegetables and fiber, um, things that you need for to be anti-inflammatory and for the gut microbiome. So you need to keep health in mind as well. So let me ask you, what are some of your go-to sites, like websites or resources for finding um, you know, easy recipes uh, you, know, you can kind of prepare during the week to sort of stay on track with this healthy way of eating? There's so much on Instagram. Um, I think you have to, I, I basically will Google things. I might just Google a, a salmon dish. Um, on my website, MarthaMcKittrickNutrition.com, I do have free PCOS meal plans uh, where they have a lot of recipes that um, you could just do a trial of, of like a week or so. Um, but I get a lot of my, my meal plans, or I shouldn't say my recipes online. I might even look on Instagram. I might look at salmon recipes. But there's not one site that comes to mind that I think is great for meal planning or uh, meal prep. Yeah, I kind of find that too, and especially with cookbooks. Like I, I tend to buy cookbooks, but then I only really use a couple recipes <laughs> out of the, you know each one. Um, I know. Right, they look pretty in your kitchen, but they take up space and you don't like all the recipes. That's why I think you can't go wrong with social media. Here is where social media is great. Uh, you can find any healthy recipes online. Yeah, and I love Pinterest as well. Yes, Pinterest is great. Um, so, if, you know, you had mentioned earlier how it isn't, you know, managing PCOS and it's not just about what you're eating. Um, you know, tell us a little bit more about like the lifestyle factors and, and, and um, maybe some tips that you give your clients beyond food. I kind of like to think of managing PCOS as like a pyramid. 
Um, and this is how I changed in the past 15 years since I started working with PCOS. I used to really zero in on the diet you know, cut back on carbs and eat a lot of vegetables. I don't really do that anymore. But sometimes when someone comes to my office for a session, I might spend the entire session talking about sleep and stress management because you can have the best diet in the world, but if you aren't getting adequate sleep or dealing with stress or being active, it's not going to be the ultimate treatment. So it really has to be kind of like uh, – like I said, a pyramid. So are you getting enough sleep? Like that, I might even say that could even be number one, because if you don't get enough sleep, how do you feel the next day? You're hungrier. You have more carbohydrate cravings. Studies have shown inadequate sleep increased the risk of heart disease, diabetes, of you gaining weight. So to me, like sleep is huge. Yeah, um, and next, I, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Um, then the next thing is um, dealing with stress. You know, I think our lives are so crazy and and you don't take time for yourself, and there's just so much stress, like what can you do in your life to take care of yourself and help to get your stress levels down? Because when stress is heightened, your symptoms of PCOS will get worse. Yeah, and I think it's all interconnected. You can't, like, you know, out-exercise a bad diet or, or vice no. versa. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, emotional health. I love Gretchen Kubaki's book. Um, I hope I'm saying her name right. The, the PCOS Mood Cure. Yes. Yeah. She, she was on the podcast. So listen to her podcast session if you're interested. It's, it's a great one. Love it. Right. That's huge. And these are areas that I think have been neglected for so many years. I mean, how often do you go to your doctor when you have PCOS and they talk about sleep and stress management and emotional health? Nobody talks about that. So there's where you have to really do your own research and mm-hmm. an advocate, advocate for yourself. Uh, then there's exercise, and I want to mention something here about exercise is that I had a client come to me recently, and she wanted to train for a half marathon, and she felt good. She was running, and but she was afraid because she was reading on the internet that you shouldn't run, that you should just do Pilates or yoga or whatever, and I just want to say is that if, you, if you're running and you feel good and you get a runner's high off it and it's not having ill effects on your body, then it's fine. I just read something today where um, women were being kind of discouraged from doing really any kind of cardio and it should all be very calm and, and, you know, soothing kind of exercise. And that's fine. I think there's a huge role of having yoga and Pilates in an exercise program and weight training. But if you want to do some high intensity interval training or some cardio and you feel good, then do it. Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. And I, and I think that, um, you know, everybody, again, it's, it's down to the individual. And, you know, as we get older, things change, too. I know that, like, my adrenals can't manage the, um, you know, high intensity, um, kind of like the single exertion exercise, you know, training for marathon. Like, I can't do that anymore. Um, but I could do it in my twenties. Yeah. Yeah. Things change too as you age and that's something to consider. A hundred percent. I used to go out and bike a hundred miles at a pop and now it's like, I would be like, uh, it would kill me for a week. (laughs) (laughs) So you have to listen to your body. Um, 
but I do think weight training, there should definitely be some kind of weight training or strength training component to your exercise program. It's important to keep the muscles there because that's how you dispose of the glucose, helps to lower insulin levels. Um, I'm a huge fan of yoga for a lot of reasons. So you want a well-balanced kind of exercise program, being active, not sitting a lot. Uh, sometimes you might go to the gym three times a week, but then you're sitting 16 hours a day, and that's not good for insulin resistance. You kind of want to get up and move. So it's a whole kind of a balanced approach. Yeah, and I, as you're talking, I was kind of thinking, you know, you really need to do your own research. And, and you know, there's so many great um, – you know, online, social media assets, people talking about PCOS. Um, so you do get a lot of, um, you know, uh, different information. Um, maybe some of it is misinformation. But you really, at the end of the day, you have to kind of do your own research. Like, find the evidence-based studies. Um, you know, really do your own digging uh, to, to sort of figure out what's going to work for you. And, and in terms of the studies, you know, that's really interesting because the study, there aren't really great studies out there. Um, and even if there are, I mean, some of the studies are done on five women. Like, you know, right. you might have a headline, oh, you shouldn't eat this. Studies show you shouldn't have this. But then when you actually look at the study, it was done on five women. So look for evidence-based when you can, but take it with a grain of salt um, if somebody's telling you that you should not do this if you have PCOS, take that with a grain of salt. It probably worked for that person. It might work for you, but it doesn't mean you have to do that. Hmm. So any other, um, you know, words of wisdom you want to impart on us before we have to um, close up our podcast? Yeah, I would just say that, that the good news is I think we've come a long way when it comes to research and PCOS and making it be out there in the open as compared to when I first got into this, like in the year 2000, people hardly ever talked about PCOS. And when we did, all we talked about was insulin resistance. We didn't talk about any of these other areas like inflammation and gut health. So I think there's a lot of information out there. Amy, like you said, you know, do your own research. Um, don't get overwhelmed. Don't feel like you have to take 20 supplements and you have to follow all these rigid plans. Just kind of take it a step at a time. Set some goals for yourself. And just it needs to be the big picture, uh, not just nutrition, but like we talked about, the exercise, the sleep, the stress management, emotional health. Um, and just, you know, take it, take steps slowly. Uh, excellent advice. And, and make it work for you. Yep. you know, has, yeah. Yeah. Well, Martha, thank you so much for coming back on the podcast and um, talking to us uh, today. And again, if you enjoyed this podcast, please check out Martha's other two um, episodes, 63 and 84. You'll learn a lot. But thank you so much for joining us, Martha. Thanks so much, Amy. I love being on your show. Thank you so much for inviting me. And thank you, everyone else, for listening. I look forward to being with you again soon. Bye-bye. Well, that wraps up our podcast today. Thank you so much for joining us on the PCOS Diva podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you liked this episode, remember to subscribe to PCOS Diva on iTunes or wherever else you may be listening to this show. And if you have a minute, please leave me a quick review on iTunes because I love to hear from you. 
If you think someone else might benefit from this free podcast, please take a minute to share it with a friend or family member so she can benefit from it too. And don't forget to sign up for my free weekly newsletter. Just enter your email at PCUSDiva.com to get instant access and make sure you never miss a future podcast. This is Amy Medling wishing you good health. Bye-bye.